It's always good when you have a few more than you had when we first started, so that's good. First uh, Samuel chapter 15 is where we're at tonight. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't here last week, but a couple of weeks ago that we'd probably spend about three weeks in this chapter. It's such a, a, a pivotal chapter in, Sa- in Saul's life, and uh, so that, that's pro- this is a second part, disobedience part two, I guess you could say, we're looking at, because uh, this is really the turning the turning point of, of Saul, he's already been he's already been showing his disobedience, but now he does this, and uh, it's 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 where the Lord rejects him as king. Now we've already discussed the problem with the order here, and uh, so I don't want to go through that again. But if you if you weren't here, you want to hear about that about God ordering genocide because the people the world talks a lot about that. How the Lord told him to wipe out everybody, kill the, in fact, it says to not only kill the men, women, but the children and the sucklings. So if, if they are being breastfed, kill them. That's what God told them. So we have a hard time with that, understandably. But there's reasons behind it, and we went in, into detail a, a few weeks ago, so if you need to go back, and that's on our, our uh, church channel there. But uh, So we won't talk about that too much tonight, but that is uh, that, that was the command, destroy them. Now tonight, we want to get to the disobedience part of this chapter, so let's start at verse number 3. This was the command, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Then go down to uh, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them but everything that was vile and refuse they destroyed utterly so if it was sick old infirm weak they'd kill it if it was robust and healthy they kept it then came the word of the lord unto samuel saying verse 11 it repenteth me that i have set up saul to be king for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. You know, that's a, I had to smile when I read that verse. A lot of people don't realize uh, how they grieve the people that God has put over them spiritually, whether it be parents, pastors, or whoever is is over you. You know, they, they go and do their thing, and they never think about uh, the fact that somebody's, Grieving over him, somebody's praying over him, somebody's crying over him, and, and so so it was for Samuel here. Verse twelve, and when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about and passed on and going down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I want to show you three lines here. Verse 3, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Okay, Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen. Verse 13, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's something. Do this, didn't do it. I did it. Uh, that's what we're looking at tonight. Father, thank you for this passage. We pray that you'd bless it, use it to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what the character of the disobedience, we, we have, first of all, partial disobedience here. 
uh, we, Saul's obedience was partial. He wouldn't utterly destroy like he was supposed to when God said to utterly destroy, but he did destroy some. Uh, partial disobedience sometimes gets a pass because we compare it to people who have no obedience, and then you have partial obedience. We're just so grateful that they're doing something, and then uh, we kind of give that a pass sometimes, spiritually speaking, because you can point to that positive obedience and or that, uh, that that obedience, the, the partial obedience you're doing, and put a positive spin on it. Uh, after all, you know, not everybody does this much, the best that I can offer, whatever the case might be. Case in point, church attendance. There's some people who only come Christmas and Easter. There's some people who only come occasionally. And there's some who come just on Sunday mornings when it's convenient. Then there's some who come Sunday mornings and some Sunday nights. And then there's you, who are here Sunday mornings and Wednesday night. Amen. That's a blessing. I mean, it really is. Uh, you're the three to thrive people, all right? You understand that, I, I think, or you, you wouldn't be here. We understand that it really does take three to thrive. If we don't have that constant barrage of, of uh, Christian influence in our life, being around God's people, we're not going to thrive the way we are. And I ask you, which one's God more pleased with? Look, we're not... We're not Talking about works for sanctification, we're not saying that we have to do this to make God love us, but but God's pleased with our good works, is He not? And uh, so, absolutely, I believe He's uh, not, he, He's not. I don't think pleased with this hit and miss attitude uh, coming only when it's convenient. He likes us for us to go all out. He wants us to be sold out. In fact, He told the church in Laodicea, if you remember in Revelation chapter three, "I know thy works, that thou art thou art neither hot nor cold." I were that thou were hot but co or cold. I always, that confused me. Think, why would he want you to be cold? I mean, you'd rather be hot or cold. Well, lukewarm, he says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. The King James Version is kind. Vomit you is basically what it's saying there. I'll vomit you out, uh, lukewarm. Because really there's nothing worse than someone who just does what they want to do. If it's good, if they feel like doing good, they'll do it. If they feel like doing bad, they'll do it. They just kind of float back and forth. They try to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world and try to hold hands with both, and they're not really picking a side. And God's basically, pick a side. Pick a side. Who are you going to serve? That's why Jesus said, you can't serve God or mammon. you got to pick a side. And so many people, that they don't want to pick a side. They uh, they, they want to be on both, and, and that really... I mean, I got no better way to say it. It makes God sick. He said, I want to vomit you out. Be cold or be hot. But uh, I, I, obviously, he wants us to be hot. So if we want God's approval, don't hold back. Don't be partially obedient. Number two, look at the plainness. It, it is not difficult to see Saul's disobedience. The command is not difficult to understand. Utterly destroy all that they have. And if that's not enough, man, woman, child, suckling, every animal, Kill, kill all he's seeing. But his actions didn't match his instructions. This is plain, simple rebellion against God. Now later, Saul tries to, we'll get, may, may get to it tonight or next week, but he tries to put lipstick on his sin, trying to make it uh, look better and sound better than it really was. All the, the perverted interpretations of men will not change the plain facts of their sin. Uh, rebellion is not changed to righteousness by a clever name swap. We do that, though. We, we do that all over in, in the world today still. The name really only changes sinfulness to the rebellion. 
Doesn't make it any better. And what am I talking about? I'll give you an example. Pastor Joe Wainwright, I think it was, prayed before Congress uh, in 1996 and uh, in, in Kansas. And this is, the, this is part of his prayer. I wanted to read it to you. We have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it a choice. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. And he went on, but that's enough to make the point, isn't it? Changing the name of a sin is not going to make it any better. It's not going to do it. Sin is sin. Uh, wrong is wrong, though all condone it. Right is right, though all condemn it. Uh, we need to go with God's way and not our own way. By the way, remember the problem in Judges? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Uh, this is not, uh, we're, not, we're not about doing what's right in our eyes. We need to do what's right in his eyes. And then number three, the priority in the disobedience. Verse 9, this is talking about the animals that Saul and the people spared the best and all that was good. Everything that was vile and refuse, they destroyed utterly. So Saul and the people gave the best uh, to themselves and gave God leftovers. Now, understand, just so we can get the right picture here, the destruction of the Amalekites here that God told them to do, the animals as well, was really considered to be a sacrifice to the Lord. When the Bible says utterly destroy, the, the original word for utterly destroy means devoted to destruction. Uh, the idea here for utterly destroy, it means that it was a thing set apart. It was something that was devoted to God. It was devoted to destruction. It was set apart by God. Uh, whatever was devoted like this could not be redeemed. It had to be killed. This was viewed as a sacrifice to God. So Saul thinks the sick and lame and the uh, weak are good enough to sacrifice to God. All the good stock he kept for himself and uh, reserved the fat ones and the fine ones. He, so he honored himself more than God, essentially. And we could stop and park here for a while, couldn't we? Because how many times do we have issues with our priorities? To keeping the best for ourselves, giving God the leftovers. Uh, when are we, we are so willing to give our leftovers to the Lord. He deserves our best. He deserves our, the Bible says, our first fruits. He deserves the best of what we have to offer. Malachi dealt with this problem in his day. Malachi 1.13, You said also, Behold, what a weariness it is, and you have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. You have brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? So when they had to bring their animals for to bring the... Uh, to the Lord, they would bring the bad ones, the sick ones, the lame ones, because it didn't cost them as much. Aren't you glad that when God sacrificed himself for you, he was a lamb, perfect, without spot, without wrinkle, without anything? We, we need to have the right priority with God. Haddon Robinson uh, writes, I just happened to read this, I thought it was funny, about an old recipe for, for rabbit stew. And the recipe for rabbit stew started out with this instruction. First, Catch a rabbit. I thought that was pretty good. 
the author knew how to put first things first, okay? You're not going to make rabbit stew if you don't have a rabbit. So he said, first, catch the rabbit. And that's what we do when we establish right priorities. We put first that which should be put first. And that's what we ought to do with the Lord. The Bible says in Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The problem is we're seeking all these things, and we're giving God our leftover time, our leftover funds, all the leftovers given to him. We need to see, put him first, and that'll help us. That'll help us to stop our own rebellion, and, and, and like it Saul here, if he'd have put God first, he wouldn't have been in trouble. Look at the number four, the passion of the disobedience. Look at verse 19. I want you to catch something here. Wherefore, then didst thou not obey the Lord, voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, didst evil in the sight of the Lord. That little phrase there, didst fly upon the spoil. They were eager to run to it. They ran to the spoil. They were excited about the spoil. And disobedience, you'll find, is often done with much more passion than obedience. People are excited about the party on Friday night. But they go to church on Sunday morning because they have to. Disobedience usually is done with a lot more passion. The, it's like the passion in Micah's day. Uh, the Bible says in Micah 7.3, they did evil with both hands earnestly. They were excited about doing evil. And you don't have to excite people today uh, to do evil. They're all over it. It's very difficult, though, to get people to serve with any enthusiasm or zeal for the Lord. Uh, some people drag their feet when it comes to serving God, but they're eager to run to sin, throwing their heart and soul into it. I, was, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'm still bitter about it, so I'll just bring it up again. But I saw on TV, uh, it was a, I think it was a, a, a football game up here at the stadium, and, and the... Uh, Help me, the not Bobcats. That's the high school. The the uh, rabbits, jackrabbits. I think it was a jackrabbits football game, and, but it was uh, snowing, bad weather. People huddled there, you know, freezing, watching a football game, you know. And if I got it at sixty nine instead of seventy, and here it's just a big deal to some people, you know, because uh, when it comes to sin, or not not that football is a sin, but you don't understand if it comes to our own pursuits, then we'll go through all kinds of trouble to do it. But man, everything's got to be just right for us to serve God. Everything's got to be real easy. So let's, let's have our priorities in order there and put first things first. Number five, the pride in the disobedience. Look at verse 12. And Saul, uh, verse 12 here, and when, when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Mount Carmel, and behold, set him up a place. This is talking about here, Saul set up a monument for himself. He basically put up a memorial for his victory over the Amalekites. Imagine the blatant disregard for not only Samuel, but for God himself. And there's a shamelessness in this sin here. Not only did he disobey God and what God told him to do, he sets up a monument for himself, a memorial, if you will. We've already seen that he has no shame about his sin. The lack of shame shows up in his disobedience to destroy Amalek, and then it's seen in spades here as he's building up a monument for himself. He's building up a monument to honor his disobedience, essentially. It's sad when people are in sin. It's doubly sad when they have no shame in their sin. They not only commit sin openly in our society today, but they have parades 
demanding that you accept it as well. And that we, that we uh, put our stamp of approval on it. And, you know, for years, e even Christians, conservative, you know, normal people say, you know, if you're going to do, do what you do. I mean, I'm not telling you how to live your life. I just don't want any part of it. No, no, that's not enough now. Now we have to approve it. We have to uh, legislate and do things to actually help them uh, live their sin. And that is uh, shameless. It's just shameless today. People have no shame at all. Then there's a selfishness of sin. Saul's monument was to exalt himself. Certainly wasn't exalt God because he didn't do what God said. I think of the monuments that Joshua and Samuel set up. First uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. This happened at Ebenezer. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. These monuments that, that uh, Samuel had set up and Joshua and Samuel, they honored God. God did this. When your remember what Joshua said, when your children come along and later generations say, hey, what are these stones here for? You tell them what God did here today. That was what the monument was for. Not Saul. Saul's putting it up for him, set it up for himself, put a monument up for him. And uh, he, he showed, it, showed that he was more interested in his own glory than he was the glory of God. Now, that was the character of the disobedience. Let's look at the confronting. Look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came unto Samuel, saying, So he discerned the obedience because of the word of the Lord. Now, there's a principle here that applies to us today. The word of God is the greatest discerner of the heart of man. Still is. That's why we need to be in it. That's why we need to be uh, to, to read it and to study it. And the Bible says in Joshua 1.8 to meditate on it, to think about it throughout your day. Uh, that the, through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. That's Psalm 109-104. Through thy precepts I have understanding. I only hate the false ways, the wrong ways, if I understand what they are and I understand what they are through your word. That's what that verse says. So if you want to discern what is good or evil, Study the scriptures and read the Bible. Uh, verse 11 goes on here. It repenteth me that I have set Saul up Saul to be king. Now, two things I want to see here real quickly. First, the repenting of God and the rebelling of Saul. But it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. When, this, when the Bible says something about God repenting, some people take a little issue with that, but it's, it's a far cry different than what the Bible talks about repentance for man, uh, a man repenting. Now, repentance really at its core means to change direction. That's what repentance te technically means. Jonah chapter 3 verse 9. Remember what Nineveh said when Jonah got up and preached? This smelly, fish-smelling weirdo got up and jumped and started preaching the destruction and, and uh, they, they got convicted and this is what they said, Jonah 3 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger, and we perish not. And you know what God did? He did repent. He changed direction. When man repents, he is changing his mind about his sins. When God repents, he is changing his attitude about man. And because God has no sin, so God doesn't have to repent of sin, he's changing his attitude about man. But wait, what about God's immutability? You know, that's... Uh, one of the big words we use to describe God. He's immutable. He changes not. The uh, Bible says in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not. That God's repenting here is not, uh, does not contradict his immutability. 
Rather, it's language to accommodate our thought process for us to see God changed his direction. He changed his uh, mind, if you will. Uh, he's not changing his character. Saul is the one that changed. Whenever God repents, you'll see that it's in response to man changing, not him. He's not changing. Man is changing whom he is repented about. Genesis chapter 5, uh, he said that he, repent, he repented the ever made man. And he sent the flood. It wasn't because of his, he, he didn't change. Man changed. Instead of following God, they were following themselves. Every thought was only evil continually, the Bible says. And so, by the way, I did a whole study on this repenting, God repenting once. Most of the time it says God repented, it's in response to prayer. I like that. Because that means that, uh, you know, something is set to happen and we change, we change our ways, we repent of our sin, and then sometimes God changes his attitude about us. And that's a great thing to see. But Saul's sin changed his position as far as God was concerned. He had moved from the approval side of God to the disapproval side of God because of his sin, because of his actions. And so God no longer wants Saul to be the king. It's like the verse of, in Jonah. It was the actions of man that changed God's agenda. We all, all have that down, hopefully. Uh, we're not saying that God can't figure out what he's about. Okay, <laughs> It's God's changing his agenda because of man's actions. Second, the rebelling of Saul. Look at verse 11. He has turned his back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. So God informed Samuel that Saul had rebelled, and God sees all, by the way. Man thinks they can get away with sin. They can't. God sees all. And as I mentioned earlier when I was reading the Scripture, this message bothered Samuel immensely. It grieved Samuel. He cried unto the Lord all night. Isn't it interesting? When, when Saul is involved in it, he builds himself a monument. When Samuel hears about it, he grieves all night. What's the difference? One's carnal, one's spiritual. Saul is spiritual, and he understands what it means to disobey God. S uh, did I say Saul? Samuel is spiritual. Uh, Saul is carnal. He is focused on himself, and so he's not bothered at all. And uh, so his, this is a instructive here for us. It shows us what to do when disappointment enters our lives, like it did Samuel here. Instead of pouting or panicking, we ought to be praying. And that's what he did. Verse 12, Samuel heads to Gilgal. He's met by Saul. Verse 13, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> Try to sound spiritual, but the words did not fit him. A lot of people like to talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's claim of complete obedience here is about as far from the truth as it can be. He described himself as being faithful, obedient, when he most definitely was not any such thing. His, this standard of faithfulness is still an issue because even today the standard for faithfulness is pretty low. People that go to church once a month call themselves faithful. I think God expects more of us. I really do. Uh, not to our harm, by the way. All that he expects from us is for our good. It isn't for any drudgery. Uh, Saul exaggerated the report of his own performance. And we'll do well if we put more effort and focus on our performance than we do on trying to report it to people. Because we like to do this, and by the time we tell people about it, it's this. You know what I'm saying? 
uh, we, we embellish our stories and our exploits. Uh, the exposing, look at verse 14. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen? Saul's obedience was cut down here by Samuel's opening statement. <laughs> uh, Saul could talk all he wanted to about how he's performed the commandment of the Lord. But then behind him, and whatever an oxen, can anybody low like an oxen? I don't know. Uh, do you know what oxen are like? <laughs> That's a sheep, man. <laughs> For the low sea, I figured being from Brazil, you'd know what oxen are. I don't know. I don't even know if oxen are in Brazil. But anyway, uh, but he could tell all about how faithful he was. How easy is our sin exposed? Now, here's, the, here's, here's the funny thing, too. Our sin is often a lot clearer to other people than it is to us. Sunday, man, you don't miss Sunday. I'm so excited about our Esther sermon on Sunday. I finished it, uh, pretty much finished it today. It's got some just awesome truths that I, I was, uh, I can't wait to talk about out of Esther. But this is one of the things we're going to discuss a little bit about how our sin on in our own life is hidden. The sinner is always at a disadvantage in hiding their own sin. It's usually much more evident to other people than he knows. I don't know how many times somebody has finally come to the point where they confess something that they do or something that they're involved in. And, and I'll be like, I, that's, that's been obvious for quite some time. I mean, I don't know why you think I wouldn't know about that, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's how people are. They're, they're often uh, not, not as aware as others are about the evidence of the sin in them. Saul became so accustomed to the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen, he, he, it just blended in with him. So he didn't even realize his sin is exposing himself. His sin is, uh, is clearly, it's like you ever, uh, as a kid, maybe you were a good kid and didn't do this kind of stuff, but mom, mom makes a chocolate cake and later she comes and sees your face and she says, did you have some of the chocolate? No, I made chocolate cake frosting all over your face, you know. And uh, your sin's evident to her. And you think, oh, I'm going to hide it. I'll just blame one of my brothers. And the evidence is right there. A lot of times the evidence is all over us too from our sin. We think we're, we think we're got everybody fooled and we don't. So that's what Saul thought. He thought he could walk up to Samuel and say, I've done the commandment of the Lord. In fact, the Lord had told Samuel otherwise, but he didn't need to. He heard cattle. He heard sheep. He heard all these things. The evidence is all around there. How foolish we are. How foolish to think we're going to get away with stuff. We just don't. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. The sheep in your life will bleat. The oxen in your life will low and the chocolate on your face will show. All right? Just, let's just not be involved in it. All right, we're going to get into a, I better make a mark here so I know where we're at. But we're going to get into, uh, I'm kind of hoping to get into this tonight because this is a fun thing to talk about. Excuses. He starts to make excuses. That's the first thing we do, don't we? When we try to, when we sin, we can do two things. We can turn from it. We can say, yep, you're right. I'm wrong. I'll change. I'll repent. Or we can start making excuses. My uh, father-in-law had two, two uh, uh, phrases he always, always used to say, two quotes about excuses. One, he would say that an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. It's kind of deep. That's a good thing. It's the skin of a reason. Just a, There's some truth to it, but it's stuffed with a lie. And the other one he gave, which is also true, is 
Excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple and they usually stink. So that's true too. But, uh, anyway, we'll get into that next week. Thank you for being here tonight.